You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Les Kirkup. Les is an adjunct professor in science at the University of Technology, Sydney, and an honorary professor in the School of Physics at Sydney University. In this episode, Les and I speak about his active contributions to learning, teaching, and research in higher education, and his long-term commitment and enthusiasm for a student-centered approach to science and engineering. Les is a recipient of the Australian Institute of Physics Medal for his work in undergraduate science education and has been awarded two national fellowships for his work in university teaching and learning. Les is also the author of Experimental Methods, a textbook now in its second edition devoted to assisting students in the physical sciences and engineering with matters relating to laboratory work, including measurement uncertainties, use of spreadsheets, and communicating findings to a broader audience. Here's my conversation with Les Kirkup. So welcome, Les. Uh, so here we are in what I understand is called the Super Lab. We've got quite noisy air conditioning and we've got automatic fluoro lights. These sort of features are quite common in labs of, or you know contemporary buildings mm -hmm. so where are we and, and like how did how did we get here and how did you get here and <laughs> well the super lab certainly is a very interesting place to work um, and it's really a contemporary space that um, reflects the use of high technology if you look around us we see screens and and we see many students can be in this lab at one time and that allows all sorts of things to happen but maybe um, I'll turn back the clock a little bit um, Maybe it's to when I uh, started thinking about going to university and um, my father, who was a coal miner, suggested that physics, which I eventually ended up doing, wasn't a serious sort of pursuit for people and I should do engineering. But it turned out to be that I stuck with physics, and I, but I did go to a company and was sponsored through university to do my physics degree, which put me in a slightly unusual situation. Yeah, how, how, did, how does that work? Well, is this in Scotland? No, this is in... Where is this? It was in England. It was actually... It is interesting because when I went to the company for an interview to be sponsored by them, they asked the question, you're going to do physics. Why have you, why have you come and uh, ask for a sponsorship from us? And I was very cocky at the time and I said, look, I think if you get a physics degree, you can turn your hand to anything. <laughs> and I think they bought that because they did sponsor me through university. And I did get a physics degree and I did go back to the company. That was part of the deal. However, it was quite clear that my heart lay elsewhere and I was interested in education. So very quickly and very um, luckily, I was offered a position at a college in uh, just outside London to, to do, some, do some teaching. It was equivalent to a TAFE college in Australia. And I got a real taste for teaching and learning and a little taste for research. I did a master's while I was down there, while I was teaching. And then I was interested in doing a PhD and I moved to Scotland. Got another job, moved from a college in outside London to a college just outside Glasgow. And uh, eventually found a topic for a PhD and I did a PhD there. So what was that topic? The topic was superconductivity, which is um, low temperature physics essentially. 
It was okay, a fun I'm going to stop you right there. What, what for a layperson? What, what exactly does that mean? What does superconductivity mean? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, superconductivity really is the extraordinary properties that materials get when you when you cool them to a very low temperature. Um, I'll give you an example. The things that you're, you've got cables around you and wires and things, and they carry electric current, and they have what's called electrical resistance. Okay, everybody who's got a bit of a knowledge of electricity would understand that. But with superconductivity, you cool the materials down, and the resistance goes completely. Not just minimized, not just reduced, it disappears absolutely. And this gives rise to all sorts of extraordinary opportunities for applications. I'll give you one example. You can use the effect of these superconductors to detect activity in the human brain, the magnetic activity in the human brain, which is incredibly small. And so people use them in hospitals to look for things like lesions and, and um, tumors on the brain, that sort of thing. Okay. So, so superconductivity is, yeah, is very important. It's, it's, a, it's a really big research area and it's the properties that some materials get when they're lowered to very low temperatures. So this was what your, um, the, the college was doing or teaching, or this is the kind of, um, you were offered an opportunity yeah. to, as research. Oh no, I, I've lost my train of thought. You were doing your PhD right. in that area. Yeah. It, it worked out that I read New Scientist uh, one day when I was in Scotland and this, someone had discovered these new materials and I thought, oh, I wonder if I can make that material. Now, I'm a physicist, not a chemist, and this was really a chemist's job. Anyway, I was getting cocky enough to sort of say, well, let's have a go at this. And after numerous trials, I managed to make the material that he talked about in The New Scientist. Wow. And I, thought, and I thought, oh, I wonder if this would be an interesting topic for a PhD. So this is a rather unusual route. Sometimes you have a supervisor who says, look, this is an area I'm working in, come and do PhD with me. That was not my route. I saw a new scientist, I thought, this is interesting, let's play around for a while, and maybe you'll find something. What? And that's exactly what happened. And what, with that playing around, what, what are, you, are you kind of working with metals or alloys? It's, or it's, Well, it's ceramics, so if you imagine uh, oxides. See, people don't expect oxides to be electrically conducting like copper is or silver is. And this is the extraordinary thing. It was so unexpected that oxides, when they were cooled to a low enough temperature, would exhibit this extraordinary behavior. So it, it blossomed. All the world in 1988 went berserk, when I say that, people who were interested in materials, everybody jumped on the bandwagon, including me, because there was so much to learn, because not many people knew much about the properties of oxides when you lower them to very low temperatures. Certain sorts of oxides um, uh, had, have these properties. So that was, that was the start of it. I thought, well, I'll investigate. I'll, I'll, um, I'll change my PhD direction. I was going to do something else. But this seems so exciting. Exciting is the thing about science. Something comes along and you've got to grab it while it's there because it won't be as interesting five years from now because people will have learned a lot. So sometimes you've got to, you've got to be opportunistic. There's sort of serendipity required, but you've got to be bold as well, I'd say. Yeah, what, what is this serendipity? Serendipity, well, you know, it's not that people, that you just fall over something. You've got to have a bit of background knowledge, maybe it's even a lot of background knowledge to know what you're seeing. And then, but you do have to, in a sense, be in the right place, or you've got to look at the right magazine. I say, I, if I hadn't opened the New Scientist that day, 
and gone, oh, I can do that. I wouldn't be sitting here with you now. So that was, that's, that's serendipitous. I looked at the right thing. You can't plan that. It just happened. So with, with the relationship, I mean, I haven't done a PhD or anything like that, but I've, I've spoken to various people over the years of the relationship between a supervisor and a candidate. So what, how did you manage to um, get on board with, mm. like, did you find a supervisor that was um, interested and, you know, because mm. like, I guess the dynamics were slightly different. Yeah, because you, um, when I went to Scotland, I went there as a lecturer, so I wasn't the conventional undergraduate. My PhD was done part-time while I was lecturing, I should say that. And so the person who I worked with was interested in, in, in the properties of materials, and he was happy to be a supervisor. But I have to say that really he wasn't terribly interested in superconductivity. It was me. So back in those days, there wasn't a sort of um, care, care that's taken now to match supervisor and student. I mean, I and my supervisor got on really well, but we didn't jump through many hoops to look at compatibility. And so he let me do my thing. I did my thing. I knew the inside of the university. I could get access to electron microscopes, that sort of thing. So I was a very atypical PhD student, not someone who had just finished their degree, found a supervisor and then worked on a PhD. I found the topic and I found the supervisor. So then what happened? I, I'm assuming you finished off your, yeah, your research and published it in some form? I did, did. And, and interestingly, about that time when it finished, I saw a job offered in Australia at the very university we're sitting in now. And interestingly, the people at that university in physics were interested in superconductivity. So here were the things were coming together. I applied for the position as a lecturer at UTS, um, and they saw my background, and um, I, I had a lot of teaching uh, experience in the areas that they were interested in. I had a research area in the area they were interested in. So they, my, yeah, I was looking fortunate enough to be offered a position, and that was in 1990. So I came here, came here. To, to Sydney in July of 1990, almost 29 years ago now. So would that have been just before, as I remember back in, in those times, UTS was not a university per se, it was more like a technical college yeah. or something like that? It, it had turned into a university in 88, I think, so oh, yeah, 88. it was a university for a couple of years, but it was still finding its feet because there were not many people who were focusing on research. Um, and things have changed dramatically over the years. You know, UTS is not the same place I joined. It has a, a tremendous reputation in research and a lot of researchers uh, as a proportion of the total staff. Whereas back then, people were, there were researchers, but it wasn't the key, it wasn't, a, it wasn't the main thrust of what UTS was about. And so, that's a long period of time with one employer. What, what did you do over those 30 years, well, close I, to 30 years? Well, interesting. I, I, I carried on for superconductivity um, for a while. But then another bit of serendipity, um, the dean in, back in 93, 94, said, we've got a group of people who are interested in brain signals. And they want to know, can we detect them and use them for something? Can you switch things off and on with brain signals? Now, remember, I was superconductivity man. But I do know about electronics and instrumentation. So I said, oh, oh, yeah, OK, I'll go and have a chat with them and uh, not believe in the day. This is science fiction nonsense. But, uh, you know, you know, just humor them. It's, I know it's terrible to say that now. But anyway, it was me that was wrong. It was me that was. Uh, the, were they in, people from another, another no, department? Another yeah, they, they, were, they were from Gore Hill, I think, at the time, which is, was a campus um, on the North Shore. Um, uh, uh, but. Um, in what, yeah. in what specific 
area. Like Psychophysiology was the right. Uh, yeah. So the person was actually in t in, uh, involved in stuttering, in, but he used brain signals to sort of detect the stuttering in 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 in, in adolescents and in adults, I think. But he noticed an interesting trend that occurred in so when when the, his patients did a certain thing, and wondered if that could be the basis of some switching that the brain could do directly. And uh, so he spotted that, but he didn't have the the skills, you know, he's, he wasn't an electronics in the, person. In the kind of, um, like, I guess, getting this, recording the signals or detecting them or yeah, getting... Yeah, or, or then doing something with them. Because I should say to you that, you know, these signals, when you put electrodes on the scalp, which is what we did, the signals are very, very small and they're interfered with by all sorts of things. The air conditioning in this room would interfere with them. The fact that you raised your eyebrows or you would, would, would interfere with the brain signals, interfere with the detection of the brain signals. So it was, a, it was a, a large technical challenge. Anyway, it, you know, we, we did something called the mind switch and it became very popular. We got onto um, Quantum, which was the ABC's program before um, Catalyst, and uh, it, it made a, quite a splash. And now again, it was serendipity. It's not an area I would have naturally gone into because it had nothing to do with physics directly. But it was fascinating, and you say, opportunism. And I mean that in the most positive sense of the word. And so, did that send set you off on a on a trajectory with with other projects that are collaborations, yeah. or how did that fold into? Yes, it what did. You were I doing? mean, we, we collaborated for quite a while, and then uh, I think after a while, my input, you know, we'd done the technical technical side. Maybe some more engineering was required, so I dropped out. But I, I started working with um, chemists on things that they were interested in. So I found myself moving from group to group, bringing my technical expertise if you like my instrumentation work as well and publishing in that area as well because it's well, as soon as you work in someone's area and you know something about it you can publish i said all of this i mean on the background of everything all the things that were happening there i was intensive in the teaching and that sort of teaching development um stayed with me all the way back from my TAFE time, if you like, in outside London, all the way through Scotland to here. So that was the that was the backbone, if you like, upon which I built my career. But these other things, this research, which were fascinating, were a major part as well. So I guess for those people that are, work at universities, they would be in the know. But other people that that maybe are not so familiar, could you explain what's uh, is it a combination of researchers and teachers or something at university or who's yeah. doing the teaching yeah it, it's interesting again the world has changed there used to be a mixture of teaching and research but I think most universities have found that if they segregate their teaching from the research they can get a lot more research done um, and uh, raise their profile in that area so although there are people who do teach and research it, th there's much more uh, separation I would say of those sort of duties and um, there are people in, in many universities that are teaching focused, for example. That was never a position when I got to UTS. You were expected to do um, both, teaching and research and administration. But the world has changed. And uh, so and, and in some ways, I would say not necessarily for the good, because I think you know, your portfolio, you need to move around. I was lucky to move around but to different research areas and do my teaching. I would hate to have been stuck in one area uh, indefinitely, which I feel uh, there's a sense of that now. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville.
So with all this research and teaching, um, I'm assuming that you, some of your papers were accumulated and you got, um, got into more significant publishing of, of say, textbooks or, or um, that type of thing. Could you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, it's an interesting area. Academics don't usually admit to writing textbooks because actually it's not, it's not necessarily seen as a very positive thing to do. But a little bit of history. Way back when, when I was in the TIFF, I was teaching some um, engineering students and there wasn't a textbook suitable for this particular course. So me as a very young academic, I was 23 at the time, I said to my colleagues, why don't we write a book about blah, blah. And they said, oh yes, if you can get a publisher, we'll help you, we'll help you write it. And, and so I wrote to seven publishers. I wrote to Longmans, to Pittmans, to Wiley, and two of them bit, and, I, and I, we, we, got a, we got a contract, much of the surprise of my colleagues, and they were forced to, to write sections of the book because they'd promised to do it. They promised, so anyway, that was 93 when it was published, 83, 1983, um, but I got a, when you write something, it, it becomes a bit of a drug. Um, it, it's surprising, because you like to see your name in, in lights. And, and you get a reward because you've got to learn more than you know to write things because you suddenly realize how big the gaps are in your own, in your own knowledge. You go, I can't write about that, I don't know enough. So you go away and you learn things and you write about them. And so the reward personally is absolutely enormous. So it, I came to Australia and I got the itch again, which is quite a long time before I had to scratch the itch. This would be 1994 now. But I did the book, Experimental Methods, the first edition. Um, with, with Wiley, Jacaranda Wiley, the best in Brisbane. And uh, it, was, it was a terrific experience. And so uh, from then on, I've done several other books with Cambridge University Press. But the thing is, and, and this is what always irritates me, is that academics aren't encouraged to write books because it doesn't necessarily seem to uh, help their um, particular career prospects. But the rewards, and I don't mean the financial rewards, the, the human, the satisfaction rewards of actually going about and doing something really well to an extent that you're prepared to put it out into the public domain is really fantastic. So you might make a few dollars, you might be able to pay for a slap up meal once a year somewhere with your royalties, but not much more. But the, the, you know, these things last, the longevity of a book is enormous. So, so what happened with your, that first book that you you in England, yeah, that, you know, it, 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 it died a death actually. It was, <laughs> it was, uh, they did 2,000 copies, it was called Essential Physics, and uh, it didn't, I mean, it sold 2,000 copies, but that's you know, that's nothing. Um, but I wasn't discouraged by that. I mean, the thing is, it was a book, it was a general physics book, and there are so many general physics books. Um, so, was it designed for a general physics for university students? Yeah, it would have done for like final year school, oh. final year school first year of a TAFE college rather than the I university. Think I know. Did it have a brown cover? Uh, no. Essential uh, physics. Essential physics. I'll show you the cover. Okay. But, uh, but, but the second book, the one, the, the um, um, experimental, experimental methods. I'm going to read the full title out. Experimental methods for science and engineering students, an introduction to the analysis and presentation of data. You see, this was something I'd hit on because there wasn't a book that covered this area. The books, the textbooks were university physics from the US, the college physics from the US. There were hundreds almost of books that were identical. But I find that's quite strange that there are all these books out there, but yet there's gaps. What, what are the gaps? What were the gaps? Well, I see that I think experimental work, uh, my 
vision from this part of the world is that the, the US uh, undergraduates, they don't have the same focus on experimental work or they're given their manuals, you know, they, they, they create something internally in the university that they give to the students. But there's not the emphasis on experimental work that, that we've given, that's my sense. And, uh, but certain, certainly there are, to my knowledge, no equivalent books that are published in the US. There are books about uncertainties, there's books about presentation, there's individual books focusing on different things. Okay, yes, so I'm not saying that anything in the book is unique. What I'm saying is bringing them all together in a form that's designed for first year undergraduates or thereabouts, so they have in one place a compact explanation of various things that they need to know about in the first year. That's, that's absent and there, there hasn't, in my knowledge, to my knowledge, been a competitor to, the, to that book. So it still doesn't sell, doesn't sell in the US, not many books tend to sell in the US. What, but, um, um, I'm just intrigued what's brought about that situation. Why are these, is it like the culture of the US or? Well, I, I'd say, yes, the not invented here syndrome is certainly the case. All oh, uh, right. Yeah, so uh, I, I, it'd be interesting to see how many non US books were recommended in the US. But again, that's my biased view from sitting here. But yeah, I, I guess whereas we, we use a lot of Australia, American books in, in Australia. Yeah, that system of like if you've got a campus or an institution and then they've, they've got reading lists and then someone's making the decision to put certain books on that reading list. And then if you've got a team of researchers that have, you know, contributed, then of course that's going to be they're, they're chosen text type mm, thing, mm. but yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah I, no I, 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 anyway, was... I genuinely believe there is there is a there is a, a gap, um, but it is true that you see universities departments often create their own text, which might just be partly instructions how you do experiments. So it'll be a, a lab manual. Step one, pick up the thermometer. Step two, put it into the water. Step three. Well, my book doesn't do any of that step thing. It's not about doing an experiment. It's about the methods you do, you would apply to all experiments. So what are these methods? I mean, I have a certain background, but I, this is not about me. It's about, yes. about you and uh, what you're doing. What, what are some of these experimental methods? Well, uh, it's, it's pretty broad, but I mean, let's say for example, one of the things that, that, that um, frustrates all scientists and engineers is that the data is noisy. You, no matter how careful you are, how good your instrument is, how many hours you've learned to use it, you never get perfect data. Now, so this concept, there is no perfect data. And that so you is say, big, that's a big concept. It we'll is, there, is, there is no perfect data. So you say, well, okay, I'm not gonna be frustrated. I'm gonna to learn to live with imperfect data and find a way to quantify its imperfection. So that I can say, you know, um, when I drop a ball, it'll take one second to land plus or minus of a second if that's and in that interval I'm sure that's where it that the time it took to fall I can't say it took exactly a second because I can't know that so and that goes to all measurements not just dropping a ball it's timing something it's sending something to Mars it's looking at something with brain signals it's like it's rounding up an, a decimal like if it, it's 3.1 yeah, or something you might round it down to three there is there's the rounding but there's also there's always things that are getting in the way of, of your measurements sometimes you can't actually um, 
you can't actually know what exactly what it is, but you sit there with, a, with an instrument and it's reading, let's say, the magnetic field in this room. And it's bouncing up and down. It's not staying constant. Oh, but in a perfect situation, it would be no, not moving. Or no, it wouldn't. There is no perfect situation. <laughs> if you want to push it to its limit, it, the, you know, things around here, every, everything around here is where there's currents flowing. It, is, is producing a magnetic field. Someone switches a light off in another room, it's gonna change the magnetic field where you are. So you would have to have immense control over the variables. Mm. Suppose you had that, and suppose you could stop, even the Earth's magnetic field is slightly changing over time. It's not constant, the Earth's magnetic field. So what I'm trying to say is, you've got an instrument, it has limitations. The thing you're measuring is probably varying a little bit. The instrument will not have infinite resolution. You can use your GPS to tell you where you are within five meters, but, what, but not within five centimeters, not within five mm. millimeters. So there are limits. Yeah, so it's sort of this concept of accuracy, but then it's all these other factors as well, like that are, that are not gonna go away anytime soon. Right. And what you need to know is what's called fit for purpose. You might say, well, I, I don't need to know these things absolutely. Let's get, you know, let's get a, a, um, a bit of reality check here. You know, as long as I know it's gonna take me 20 minutes to get home. I don't care if it's 20 minutes and three seconds, that's not important. So although I'm going a bit on uncertainties and errors and measurement and things, you've got to say, well, this is good enough for my purpose. And that's what scientists do. Can they get the values that they want good enough for the purpose? But to know that, you've got to be able to quantify how well you do know something. So this idea, quantify, quantify is equivalent to just say measuring. Measuring, yeah. yeah. It's getting a number. A yeah, number. Rather than just saying, it's warm in here, I'll say, look, it's 23 degrees plus or minus one degree. Warm is qualitative. The 23 is the quantitative. Simple as that. Yeah, so I guess that in that field of science and engineering, you're obviously working with numbers, measuring things, quantifying things. So why, um, I guess, back to these experimental methods. So they're kind of, is it, say, the accurate use of instruments or the, the kind of, when to know if there are other factors you might need to be aware of, like, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, there are a number of things that influence measurements. Some things that you um, might talk about, such as you know, maybe the airflow in this room will affect the temperature at any point, depending if the cool air flows, you know, past a point. So there's there's a fluctuation there. But there's also a situation where there are systematic effects that actually influence all the measurements. So a good, a good scientist, a good engineer, will not only be able to deal with the fluctuations which he or she can see, but actually be aware there are systematic effects affecting all the measurements. You say, well, where do they come from? Well, if you pick up a thermometer to measure the temperature, it won't actually measure the temperature exactly of the air. It measures its own temperature. A thermometer measures its own temperature. And you infer that what it's doing is measuring the temperature of the air. But there'll be a lag between what it says and what the temperature is. Now that lag can be consistently measuring too high, consistently measuring too low, depending on the circumstance. It can be introducing a systematic, an error all the time. So part of experimental methods is identifying these interfering things, and again, being able to quantify them. Oh yeah, um, that's what you were saying there earlier, quantifying the, yeah. the unknown or quantifying right, the error. Yeah. And sometimes it's very, very difficult. Some scientists spend the whole of their lives trying to quantify things. Um, <laughs> they do, I mean, oh, they dear. become obsessive compulsive. Yeah, I mean, scientists, it. metrologists <laughs> in particular, 
who what, look after what are they? metrologists, not meteorologists. What's, not what's a, a metrologist is someone who's interested in really in the science of measurement. Metrology is mm. science of measurement. And they, they'll spend their lives wor worrying about what the systematic error is because they determine our measurements because how do you know what a second is a second? How do you know a meter is a meter? Someone has got to decide the yeah, standard yeah. and maintain something it. last year I remember they, they changed the standard yeah, from yeah. A, a physical something or other in France. Yes, that, that's right. They've been moving to where from, from artifacts many years ago a meter would be the distance between two lines scribed on a piece of a platinum iridium bar, I think it was platinum iridium, and, and a kilogram is a lump of metal held in Paris. Well, they want to get away from these artifacts to something which is... So what do they use now? Uh, well, for, for, the, for, for distance, they use something fundamental, like the, um, the time it takes for light to travel a certain... Um, how far light travels in a certain period of time because light always travels at the same speed in a vacuum or we believe that and you have uh, ability to to measure frequency very carefully and very accurately and therefore measure time so if you can measure time accurately and, and velocity is constant you can define the meter in terms of the distance light travels in a certain period of time it's not the distance between two physical objects it's how far light travels in a certain time now, you, your, where your faith is, so there is faith here as well, the faith is that light travels at a constant speed all the time. We have no evidence to suggest that it doesn't. But if it were to be travelling at a different speed in a vacuum, we would be stuffed. <laughs> because we're building our, our measurement system on that supposition. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So all this measuring and, um, you know, scientific method, I, I guess I had more of a, an assumption that there was a lot more accuracy going on, but it's sort of like, you know, the proof mm. is in the pudding. You, there's all this technology that is actually using this scientific knowledge so it must work as they say so um but i mean do all scientists think this way or uh well i think all i mean i'll, I'll narrow it down to physical scientists because obviously that's that's as opposed to well biological or, oh. may, or you know someone who's in social scientists for example um uh but yeah i think you know you can get seduced by the um shiny equipment that you'll see in a laboratory might be an electron microscope and you go wow these people are really doing advanced work and indeed they are um, but the, the more that you that you rely on technology and the more that you make advances the more I think you find that at the edges there are still the unknowns there are still I want I need to get a little bit more accurate let me give you an example up in satellites there are atomic clocks and atomic clocks will measure a second to within um, 10 to, 1 in 10 to the 15. I don't know if you can imagine that. 1 in 10 to the 15. Very, very tiny. Very, very, very tiny. And you say, well, uh, I mean, there's, they are incredibly, incredibly precise. And the reason why you need something like that 
is that in those satellites, they, they're being used to send signals to the ground and back up for your GPS. And if it knows the time exactly, and from three satellites, it can actually triangulate to see exactly where you are. But I say exactly, maybe it's in within 10 meters. Within, but you might say, well, actually, I want to know within one meter. Okay, we need one in part in 10 to the 16. So everybody will always be wanting more accuracy. They'll never get absolute accuracy. You say, it's, when is it good enough? And you think, well, it's good enough until it's not good enough. And then people say, well, okay, we need a better system. So I think I would say, to answer your question, all scientists are aware or that there are limitations on the, um, on the instruments they use and in, in limitations in even the things that they're measuring. It's not just the instrument. Something that you're trying to measure might be changing with time. As the speakers say, we speak in this room with the air conditioning. Every second, the, the room's temperature is changing very minutely. You can't detect it and I can't detect it, but it's a thermometer would. So do we need to worry about that? Probably not. But there'll be a situation where you'll want very good temperature measurement and control, and then it will matter. So if it was a, a specialist lab that was researching something where temperature was so was crucial, very, and it, yeah, exactly. they'd have a different air conditioning setup. Yeah, I mean, so many things, chemical reactions change uh, because of temperature. You know, temperature is one of those things, it's, it is quite hard to control, and it influences very, very many things. Well, like the superconductors you, you conductors. were talking about. That's right, that's right. So temperature, uh, so you can measure it very, very accurately, um, but you can't necessarily control it. So control and accuracy, what do, you need, what do you need for your particular purpose? That's one of the questions. But yeah, getting back to the thing, I would say all scientists should be aware that there are limitations in the methods that they use. It's being aware what are those limitations and not just taking, oh, my instrument is reading 62.57354. It was very reassuring to read a number and then just run with it. That's right. It's kind of like troublesome almost to kind of even it's a bit of a wet blanket on the experiment if you have to constantly be distracted by, oh, maybe there's, they're not so accurate or maybe mm -hmm. there's other influences. Yeah, or, so I guess this is the type of territory that you're trying to introduce to your, yes. your, your students. I, I, think, I think to be, to be never take things at face value. I think that, that, that's basically it in the laboratory. I mean, uh, if, you, if your whole life was like that, you'd, you'd never get up in the morning and get Make out of bed. paranoid and suspicious. Yes, but you know, um, so you've got, actually it's, it's even worse when things come out the way you expect them to. Because when they come out the way you expect them to, you don't actually question it. You're expecting it to be that way. And in fact, your, your critical faculties should be honed when something happens that you're actually expecting to happen. That's when you should be really worried because you're not, you're not actually applying any criticism or any critical mm. faculty. You just say, oh, I knew that was going to happen. It's when you sort of pick, pick that apart and say, well, actually, looking a bit more deeply, it isn't quite what I thought it was. So whether things go the way you expect them or don't go the way you expect them, you should be looking very carefully at the results that you get. So why, why is this sort of approach? It's almost like a, a kind of um, an attitude or a, a perspective on on research, but what, why is it important or why is it significant? Well, people can fool themselves so easily. You know, the, uh, scientists have a couple of things in their favor and, and that they, they really like and they, they want, they, they desire. One is a reputation, another one's a big lab, but let's go for the, <laughs> let's go for the reputation. The reputation comes from give, people giving you lots of money for your research 
and writing papers in prestigious journals like Nature or Science. Is that, and you mean the kudos the and kudos, prestige yeah, yeah, that comes yeah. with that? Yeah. I mean, there are some universities, uh, not in Australia, I think, who pay their, their academics more money if they get published in Nature, the, the journal Nature. You know, and it's giving the man money. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars wow. for a paper. It's an incentive. It's an incentive. But it's also an incentive not to do the job carefully enough. In other words, I'm not talking about fraud necessarily, but it, it, it does raise its head every now and again that certain things are published and have to be withdrawn later on. And partly, I mean... They have it, to give the money back if they get withdrawn. Uh, I don't know about the universities, <laughs> but people lose their reputation. Oh, and, yeah, well, uh, of course, yeah. Of and, course and, and, and they won't be taken. So, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is... The bigger the reward, the more people will be prepared to risk things to get that reward. So... Mm. Um, so what, yeah. were the th what were the three things? Or the, the, there was one that... Prestige and... Oh, yeah, prestige. I guess there's prestige, uh, getting grant money, and lots of resources like Big Lab Space, for example, and good PhD students, but PhD students will come if you've got the money. But yeah, but most of all, it's the reputation, because that's what you carry with you from one place to another. And uh, yeah, you, could, you can imagine a new academic who needs to achieve something and to show that they're, they're um, up there with the, with the big dogs, if you like, to uh, publish in a, in a prestigious journal and perhaps, you know, be tempted to take shortcuts. Um, so one of the things that is important about experimental methods, getting back there, mm. is the authenticity and the credibility of these things. Um, now, this is, this is a, 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 you know, not something you can teach, I don't think, but it's... it's um, Says the man who spent the last 35 years or his whole career... Oh, I can teach that, but I can't, I can't, I'm not sure I can teach people to be honest. So how do you approach that then? If you can't teach them, what's how? You well, I guess well, you, yeah, you wonder where it starts. You know, you imagine yourself in a first-year lab, and you know that the acceleration due to gravity should be 9.8 meters per second squared, and you get an answer of nine, and you go, oh, the lecturer will never know. I'll, I'll just tweak this result a little bit, and it'll fudge the figures. I'll fudge the figures. It'll be so. Is that the start? Do, do, we need, we, do we need to actually explain to students that, or not explain, it's actually getting to, to really to appreciate that it does matter wherever you are if you're going to change results without going through the proper steps of making the measurements again or whatever. Because, you know, what, what thing that you say, well, that doesn't really matter, it's just a first-year lab experiment. What happens if it becomes your PhD? What if, you, what if you say, well, okay, I know the crystal structure should be this, but everybody else is getting this, so I'm going to fiddle mine to fit like the, somebody else's. You know, so uh, I don't know. How, it, it's this, this, the, the, the moral, I guess, uh, is, um, uh, the, in the morality of it all, needs to, be, um, uh, needs to be brought out, I think, even the first year, to sort of say, look, this is what you got. You should just talk about what you got, maybe explain why you didn't quite get what you thought you'd get, rather than fiddling the results. But I think that's, that's, me, that's easier said than done. People will say, I'll get less questions if I get the 9.8 metres per second squared than if I get 9. So how, how do students generally respond? Like, this is the second edition of this book, so uh, have you had any feedback on how the first edition the was used The and first received? edition, yeah, I got, for, uh, well, mainly from the people who used it, as in the academics who recommended. Yeah, it, it, it found a really uh, a strong market, mainly in Australia and in the UK. It was, um, I, as, from memory, it was um, recommended at Cambridge University and Imperial College and various other 
you know, prestigious universities around the world. I'm not saying it still is now because the first edition is very old. But uh, yeah, it found a niche and um, it sold quite considerably. It was, it was um, uh, certainly in the early years, that's what happens with textbooks. There's a, a lot of people buy them and then it tails off. Of course, we're now in the 21st century and whether or not people will buy textbooks is another issue. Whether or not they'll go for um, PDFs and, uh, or just surfing the web, you know, to try and get the information without, without paying for it. But then, I said that raises its issue of how credible is the information you've got. Can you actually understand what you're reading? Is it, is it put together in a way that's been designed for, for an audience which, are, which is made up of first year students of science and engineering? That's what my book is trying to do, is trying to reach that, that audience. Yeah, so what, what are some of your thoughts on big, big issues like credibility, integrity mm. within, you've touched on some of these already, but within this ever, ever expanding communication world with, with you know, mm. data and fake news and yeah. all of this kind of prestige of publishing and incentives and where, where does kind of... Well, yeah. What are some of your thoughts on this, yeah. this era that we're in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, I say there, there is a, you know, the vote, the, the phrase "publish or perish" has been around for as long as I've been in higher education. Publish. It meant more in places that already had a, a great reputation for doing research, let's say, but that reputation or that incentive, that desire, is now um, to, to publish. And, and have a high research profile is now common across, let's say, all Australian universities. And so there are many more people, if you like, trying to get into publishing and, and, and push their institution higher up the international rankings. Uh, and so there is a lot of pressure, I'd say, for people to, to um, supply the goods, for want of a better term. Now, the extent to which that is done legitimately you know, it's one of those things that in years to come, people will look back and certain things will appear strange and uh, investigations will take place. So but I, would, I would say there's, a, you know, there's more pressure now than there's ever been for people to, to um, publish and not just anywhere in, in high prestigious journals, high, highly ranked journals. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I worry that certainly the new academics, I, always, I worry about the new academics, two reasons, that pressure to publish and also the pressure to try to an extent to minimize your interaction with the students because if you have a lot of interaction with students that means you're not actually spending time on your research right so you the, the academics are missing out because one of the most rewarding things you can do is to be working with students so they've been pushed on the research front and i think they're losing out because you're a lifetime you're 20, 30 or 40 years perhaps being an academic to not have that interaction with the students, whether it's first year, second year, third year, whatever, I think that that's a big loss to the to a, a large number of new academics that are coming through, who will be the people that the students would look up to if they ever got a chance to see them. Yeah. So why why is that so satisfying? That kind of um, you know spending time with students and that kind of learning and teaching space. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but you do see, you, you do bring on students who will actually accelerate past you and become professors. So you actually get a chance, one of my students that I work, is now a professor at Sydney University, and he's doing really well. Um, and so, you know, the, you, you, you actually get to know them, you, you get to work with them, and um, you see them blossom. Um, and 
and I have to say, one of the things that uh, I enjoy when I was teaching in the laboratory is the, the, the closer contacts. You actually get a chance to work in a, a closer variety rather than being in a, in a big lecture theatre. But nowadays, of course, we have the internet, which displaces the student even more from the academic, which in itself is a, a huge problem, in my opinion, in terms of students not even knowing what this academic looks like because they're displaced you know, um, and they just pick up the, the materials they need online. Why, why, why is that a problem? Well, it's a community, isn't it? Don't you learn as a community? I don't think communities online, the communities online probably work once you've got some strong relationship with someone, but I'm not sure how well they work as a, from a starting point to sort of bring people together on a, on a list and that they can actually talk to each other. I think if you've got a, if you've got a physical space, there's work you can do together there's also the other side of being a student and that's a social side I don't see that working terribly well as a is internet as a conduit for that sort of interaction and being a university is more than just getting a degree even universities that have got a lot of real estate who would expect naturally to bring the students together to do things in this space which we do in a in a lab like this which is great but even those universities are making it so that students don't have to be at the university. And I'm just wondering, you know, uh, uh, what sort of experience they're getting in the long run. There's a, there's a term called engagement. In the quality quilt, which is a quality indicator of learning and teaching, one of the areas that the students perennially talk about that is not good is student engagement. It's down on all the other measures. You can have great laboratories, you can have great libraries. Student engagement is way down compared to, the, and this is across nearly all the universities. So what is student engagement? Well, it's certainly, if you rely on the internet for the engagement, it's been shown to be not as effective as when students are on campus. So I think that's one thing academics need to think about in universities, perhaps even more than academics how are they really genuinely fostering student engagement? In this episode, I chatted with Professor Les Kirkup, a physicist from Sydney, Australia. You can find links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.